Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I did. I slept for five hours. We are gathered round the table in my office at 25 past nine on the 9th of November. I slept from 11 to 4. I laid in bed for two hours and just kind of like stared at the ceiling and I was like, eh, it's not going to We've been downstairs for an hour or so talking about the results of the American election. Donald Trump made his victory speech about two hours ago, an hour and a half ago. Hillary Clinton still hasn't appeared in public, we don't think. We're all in various states of shock. I think more so we did this for Brexit and my memory of it was that it felt different. There was some shock around that, but it's not. Looking around at the faces, it's not like this. Playtime was over, wasn't that my line last time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. That was your catchphrase. And you were right. We're not in Kansas anymore. Playtime is over. So there are some huge things that we can talk about, and we can talk about them forever. We won't. We'll talk about them maybe another day. Maybe we'll talk about some of the big issues today. But let's just start with your feeling about things that look different now relative to how they might have looked as the campaign was unfolding. So I'm going to give one example. I was thinking about what were the moments where, because last week, I think most of us said that we thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. And I was thinking about what were the things that now that we know that she hasn't won, you think with hindsight, maybe we should have spotted. And I very strongly felt at the time of the first debate that he had blown it because I thought the first debate exposed him. But I remember saying on this podcast, the only thing that gave me pause is the old political adage that in politics, something beats nothing. And as I was listening to all the pundits last night, explaining after the event exactly how they knew he was going to win because he stood for something, and he did. And then I was thinking, it is still the case that she doesn't or didn't have a message. Did she? I don't think that she had a message that was anything other than you can't vote for Donald Trump. Uh, I think she started off in the primaries trying to have a message and she um, actually did want to make a critique of the Obama years initially and then she realised that she actually had to embrace Obama's legacy very tightly to essentially take over his coalition, paradoxically even the one that she'd run against in the 2008 primaries. But I think that Hillary Clinton's problems as a candidate just go way beyond that and that is she was just an awful candidate for the Democratic Party to pick, not only to pick in a year in which there was so much distrust and intense dislike of the establishment, but essentially to foister on the Democratic electorate um, in the nomination process by the superdelegates having lined up behind her in the way in which they did before, is, is there were no other long-standing, serious Democratic candidates. Martin O'Malley is a relatively insignificant figure, um, Bernie Sanders wasn't even a Democrat 18 or so um, months ago. Instead, they picked somebody with a, a terrible track record when it comes to questions about honesty and are open to a whole set of accusations about corruption in relation to the Clinton Foundation and who has shown time and time again that she's not particularly good at campaigning. So not only did she not have a clear message, because I think her initial message was derailed by what happened in the, in the nomination process, but she's just not very good at this stuff, and she comes with an awful lot of negatives. I should say that pretty much everyone who's involved in this podcast is sitting in this room at this moment, some around this table, some sitting in chairs, some looking more unhappy than others, no one looking particularly cheerful. I've been up all night 
watching it all night. I think some of us have slept, some of us haven't. About halfway through the night, I really started to feel for Obama in that just the thought that, given that she was running to protect his legacy, and he had you know, the, the conventional wisdom, which now doesn't look like it's worth much on any issue, was that he'd had quite a good campaign himself and Michelle Obama had really been out there kind of rallying the troops and so on. And this is what, in the end, he's bequeathed his country. Yeah. Obama's approval rating is uh, fairly high right now. But as Helen accurately pointed out when we were talking this morning, um, in many ways, that might have been an artifice of the contrast effect between Obama on the one hand and uh, two of the most unpopular candidates in the history of U.S. electoral politics to run for the White House. And uh, yeah, he will be uh, hit pretty hard by this. And I can't help but think that he's going to be one of the people who's most shocked this morning. Uh, the reason I say this was he, the other day he was very much belittling Trump, you know, saying, oh, well, now they've taken the Twitter away from him and he can't be trusted with Twitter. How can he be trusted with the nuclear codes? You know, really kind of kicking him while he was down. And everybody, I think, probably even Trump suspected he was going to lose at that point if there's anything to this New York Times story that came out about him needing constant reassurance in the last days of the campaign from his staffers. So uh, I don't think Obama saw this coming. I don't think Trump saw this coming from what I've read. I don't think uh, the internal GOP polls saw this coming. But yeah, Trump has an agenda. He did not run nearly as reactive a campaign as Hillary Clinton did, who was either reacting to Donald Trump or before that, Bernie Sanders, or to uh, the email controversy and James Comey and the FBI, what have you. And part of his agenda will be the undoing of the Affordable Care Act, which is Obama's signature legislative accomplishment. The only thing he was really able to get done until he started facing an obstructionist Republican Congress after his first two years in office, right? So if that's how you think history will remember Obama by is, you know, how, how that particular piece of legislation works out, things do not look good for, for that part of his legacy. No, and it, it must be the case that history will remember Obama for what happened in the last six hours, because either a Trump presidency is going to, in some sense, succeed, and if it does, then it will be undoing Obama's legacy, or it'll be some kind of cosmic catastrophe, in which case that is indeed what Obama bequeathed his country. I mean, it's hard to see a good out for Obama's legacy from this. Anyone want to tell me I'm wrong? No. Nobody wants <laughs> you're, to tell me. You're, you're not wrong, but I don't, I'm not sure we can really lay this at Obama's feet. I mean, it's really... Yeah, no, I mean, it's unfair. Uh, structural but... and demographic conditions, both domestic and global. I mean, so... I'm not sure what Obama could have done to prevent this outcome. And of course, this is this is what we now talk about all the time on this podcast. This is one of a series of unfortunate or surprising events. And clearly, they're not isolated. And also, the, the Trump phenomenon is happening in lots of different parts of the world. So Aisha, you, you know this phenomenon in different settings, right? You're better placed than others to tell us what this kind of politics is like. So we're, we're about an hour into um, Trump... Trump time in America. But what does your knowledge of how this kind of politics plays out in places like Turkey suggest to you about a Trump presidency? Speaking from experience, this combination of, of a highly polarized society with this type of leader is unfortunately a recipe for really uh, problematic politics because the fact of the matter is Trump cannot deliver on the many promises that he's made uh, to his base. And 
when that becomes evident, his recourse will be to reassert the polarizing dynamics of the campaign. And uh, that ends up creating a situation where constantly some segments of uh, society is being demonized. So, you know, Mexicans, uh, Muslims, I don't know. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter because it doesn't have that strong of an ideological basis. It can, it's, you know, the enemy du jour. And that's what keeps uh, consolidating the base or reconsolidating the base. So that's what I fear will happen in the US as well. Because, yeah, we're an hour and a half in and we've had his acceptance speech, which was full of noble talk about uniting the country and this being one nation and so on. And that will last weeks, months, I if we're lucky. It's just talk. Who knows? But it's it's I, I don't I don't believe it. When it. Whenever it's convenient, it will be uh, shedded. And presumably, some of that kind of politics could play out even when he comes to trying to repeal Obamacare, for instance, something like that, because the actual politics of that is going to be really messy. Yeah. What we're going to see in pretty short order is whether Obama actually was the architect of a really kind of unpopular set of political policies and an unpopular agenda overall, or what Trump's going to have to do is, in fact, engage in kind of an insurrectionist style politics where he has to undo policies that, in fact, a large segment of the population, perhaps the majority, because it looks like Hillary Clinton's going to win the popular vote. Here. So more than 50% of the people are, will have voted for, even though she's lost the Electoral College, if he's going to have to tear down something that most people are going to resist attacks upon. And if that's the case, right, uh, Stephen Skoranek, who's written a lot of excellent, <laughs> probably the best American political development theorist uh, of our day and age, has said, right, this is the recipe for a constitutional crisis, is when you have a kind of Nixonian-like figure who is waging insurrectionist politics against an old regime that is still fairly popular amongst a large segment in the majority of the population. So we'll, we'll soon see. I think the one thing he's not going to have any difficulties on is Obamacare. Mm. I mean, the Republican Party is structurally, systematically opposed to the Affordable Care Act. It was from the start, not a single Republican voted for it. I think he's going to have an awful lot of t- problem with the Republican Party, and sometimes I don't think he was a Republican Party candidate, but Obamacare isn't going to be one of them. And I would just say on that, I think that one of the things that's been underrated in terms of what has happened in the last few weeks and the shift that does look like it took place in the last few weeks is the impact of the increase in Obamacare premiums and rising deductibles uh, in a number of these states that have swung out of the Democrat column to Trump. Mm-hmm. And that I think, particularly in Britain, that, that hasn't received enough attention is is that there was a distributional conflict at stake in Obamacare and a group of essentially lower middle income Americans have borne the burden of the benefits that others quite rightly were given but the people who did not lose out from Obamacare were the well-off and privileged people in the United States who have health care through their employers and if you say well what is one of the contests that this contest has been about it's been a contest between conflict of interests and the people who have lost of, out of Obamacare have been, I think, pretty important to the Trump coalition. And Helen, can I just ask you, I'm sure we'll come back to this, but whatever's going on in politics around the world, democratic politics, it has its roots in what happened in 2008, presumably. And this is one iteration of it. It's probably one of a sequence that hasn't even reached its halfway point, never mind its end. There will be other versions of this. But what do you think, what is the fundamental thing that happened in 2008, if you have to trace it back, that results in something like Donald Trump becoming president? I think it is the um, reintroduction of class into politics in a very politicised way, that the 90s and the 2000s 
were not really about class-driven politics. They become much more about identity um, politics. But the politics of the 70s and the early 80s were very much about class, and that came back in 2008. So we've rotated. I think I was aware during that last discussion there was a certain air of, well, I thought it was seriousness, but um, my colleague here told me we just sounded tired, and maybe we are tired. I don't know. I think we are tired. Finbar, go on, inject some energy into this. Did anything about last night excite you? Uh, no, nothing excited me. It worried me, it stressed me, and it, it, it woke me up. I did the version of watching the election on on speed dial, or fast forward, I should say, excuse me. Um, so I was recording it, got up at four o'clock, and then basically fast forwarded to when all the polls were closing so I could pick up and be on time again at about quarter to five. And it seemed pretty obvious at about 2.30 when Florida was really, really starting to go that this was a really troubling night. And then obviously, um, by about four o'clock, it was absolutely clear that this is the direction that things were going. It didn't excite you, but were there moments, even in fast forward, where you felt we're looking at something really different from anything that we've seen in politics in our professional lives? I don't know, in our adult lives? I mean, I had some moments, I was saying before, for me, this felt a little bit more 9-11-ish than it did Brexit, in the sense that there were one or two moments where it just felt like the familiar ground had just tilted on its axis a bit. And I, the only other time I can remember that was the day that the Twin Towers came down. In this room, we're all uh, academics who study politics. And from the point of view of a political scientist, we're about to see an enormous natural experiment. We're going to find out whether a lot of the checks and balances in the American Constitution actually work the way they're supposed to. If you go back to the rhetoric surrounding the drawing up of the American Constitution, there's this idea that the Constitution needs to be sufficiently well-designed so that if a fool or a knave holds the highest office, the system will preserve, the system will continue. Uh, I'm also reminded of that moment at the Constitutional Convention where Benjamin Franklin is supposed to have said that they'd produced a republic if you can keep it. There's a very old discourse about how republics fall apart, how republics degenerate, how republics decline, how republics fall prey to corruption. The design of the American Constitution was self-consciously to try to delay that, postpone that, address that through the so-called checks and balances that people learn about in school. And we're about to find out in the most striking way possible whether these the, checks and balances work or not. And that's going to be interesting. But the problem is that it's a clean sweep. So the Republicans have the Senate, the Republicans have the House, they've got an empty seat on the Supreme Court. So they're fully in the game and checks and balances are going to be very, very weak. My version of checks and balances is actually going to be Trump versus the Republican Party. And that's where potentially there's some limitation. But God only knows how that's going to play out. I mean, I, I think that's true to a certain extent. But I also think the Constitution that we have now is not the one that the founders wrote, both because we've changed it over the years, but also because through just the running course of politics, the presidency has accrued more power to itself in the last century than what it was intended to have. And, you know, that's the work of both Democrats and Republicans and begins really with FDR. And it isn't entirely clear to me whether the system as designed in which all three branches of government are supposed to have equal power exists now and whether that may play a role in the extent to which he's able to basically steamroll the rest of government. And obviously one of the quirks in this whole arrangement is the Electoral College, and it does look like, I, I don't know if anyone's checked. No, anyone. she, uh, Clinton's just behind in the popular vote now as well. But do we think she's going to end up ahead? Very tight. Very tight. Anyway, it's at least still possible that we're going to have a clear winner in the Electoral College who's lost the popular vote 
So I may be wrong about this. My understanding is that system was also a kind of insulation against majoritarianism to make sure that the big states couldn't dominate the small states. But it does seem to have had this quirky effect that it's produced the populist candidate and allowed him to become president. So what what am I missing there? Was that system designed to protect America from someone like Hillary Clinton winning New York, winning California, and thereby coercing the people of Wisconsin? So now the people of Wisconsin are going to coerce the people of New York and California. It is a curious system. And no it doubt is a curious system. If, if Clinton does end up ahead in the popular vote and after the absentee ballots or the overseas votes are counted, you know, she, she may do. There were analysts saying that she's likely to benefit from the votes that are counted last. So she may still end up ahead. And if she does, then no doubt Democrats will scream, as they screamed in 2000, that there's something undemocratic about losing the presidency while winning the popular vote. It does resonate, that idea that the presidency is a straightforward headcount. But whatever the actual design of the Electoral College, everyone knows that the system means that some votes count more than others. Votes in Ohio, votes in Florida, votes in North Carolina count for more than votes in New York and California. And that's not because they're small and New York and California are large. It's because the votes in the swing states matter, whichever those swing states are. And the candidates quite properly invest more resources in going after those votes. And so I'm never especially moved by these complaints about how, from a certain point of view, the result looks odd. The election is fought under certain rules. As Maha said in a slightly different context a moment ago, those rules are the product of 100 years of competition between the Democrats and the Republicans. Both parties are implicated in these rules. If I'm concerned about an aspect of the Democratic contest, it's a concern about how the um, Supreme Court jurisprudence regarding the Voting Rights Act may have affected the ability of African Americans to cast votes in the usual polling places or without waiting for a long period of time. These are what we should be concerned about, whether the electoral system is being tilted in particular ways, not, I think, with the quirk that one candidate has won more votes, but the other candidate has won in the Electoral College. And Maha, is, is the criticism of Clinton fair, which is was all over the airwaves when it was clear Trump had won, which is that she simply took for granted a couple of states, particularly Wisconsin, not appreciating that these states were not simply to be taken for granted that they were up for grabs. You know, the Electoral College is what it is, and everyone knows that's how it works, but you have to therefore decide which states are worth investing time and money in, and, and they just got that wrong. Yeah, I think that's part of it, and I think Wisconsin was a real surprise to me, but Michigan threw up a big polling surprise earlier in the year in the primary where she was very ahead in the polling, and then Bernie Sanders won the primary, and I remember there being a whole discussion of what's gone wrong with the polling in Michigan, so I think we all probably could have been more attuned to the fact that Michigan might be a surprise state. So that is part of it. I think they did probably take the upper Midwest slightly for granted. I also think, you know, they were counting on demographics and the fact that her campaign had such a great ground game. Mm, um, that and great that, mythical ground that, game that we were I mean, talking about last I mean, week. That, I mean, that is true in the sense that, like, there were... You know, I mean, that is documented. The number of people that the Trump campaign had on staff is a, you know, a matter of the statistical record. And it's clear that they didn't have that many people. But it turns out it didn't matter that much. People who have historically voted Republican voted Republican, even though Donald Trump is running on a platform that isn't what we've seen from the Republican Party in the last couple of cycles. And I think they didn't quite appreciate how much the core Republican vote was going to come home, especially among educated white voters. I think they were expecting to kind of peel some of those people away. 
and then I do think one of the key states, Michigan is one of the big ones, right? But the other one that every prediction had in the Clinton camp that went the other way is North Carolina. And North Carolina is the state where it is almost certain that voter suppression targeting minority voters played a key role. Um, and so that's the state that without the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, she probably would have won. Sure. But I thought you were actually going to say, because the other state that is startling is Pennsylvania, because the Obama operatives, they said we probably have lost Ohio. But Pennsylvania, we always know how to win Pennsylvania. No, they didn't. Well, my mother was canvassing for Hillary Clinton in Pennsylvania a couple of weeks ago. And the, I guess I knew that that might be soft because she had said my mother used to live in Philadelphia and she had been canvassing in neighborhoods in Philadelphia that she knows pretty well and was saying these are neighborhoods where the support for Clinton should be stronger than it than it is. What I'm struck by listening to this exchange just now is how similar it is to the, the discourse surrounding the 2015 general election in this country, even when it looked going up to the election as if it was going to be very tight. There was enormous complacency in Labour circles about how the Labour get-out-the-vote operation was better than the Conservatives, how Labour had had this campaigning technique that, you know, there'd been seven million contacts documented between the party and the voters, and on the day it would matter. And talking to people who were involved in door-knocking and trying to get out of the vote on election day, they said, you know, there was nothing wrong with the get-out-the-vote operation, it's just the vote didn't want to be got out, that people weren't enthused by Mr Miliband, they just weren't minded to vote Labour, the machine was working fine, it was the voters who were reluctant, and I'm I'm strongly reminded of that, listening to Maha talking about Pennsylvania. It may be that there's propaganda surrounding these mythical get-out-the-vote operations, and that needs to be scrutinised much more carefully than we tend to. But it may be that something else is going wrong, that both the Labour Party and the Democrats put up candidates that just didn't appeal enough to the kind of people who usually vote for them. And there was some interesting commentary on CNN, and I don't know how much weight to put on it, but they were casting it as, you've got to think about the people who voted Obama and now voted Trump, and whether or not the actual legacy, you were talking about Obama's legacy, possibly his legacy is that he introduced the idea of change in such a strong and forceful way, and that's got handed over to Trump. Trump has changed. So Obama was hope and change. Trump is fear and change. Yeah, and again, on CNN, the, the, the exit polling I was most struck by in a couple of these swing states, asking people what they cared about most. One of the things they cared about most was change, and then asking which candidate represents change. And Trump won that 70 20. Mm -hmm. You look at that, it's easy with hindsight. You look at that now and you think, well, how did we ever think that he was going to lose this election? But we did. <laughs> okay, I want to ask the really big question, which is the legitimacy question. So I was only half joking when I said, rather than the people of California coercing the people of Wisconsin, now the people of Wisconsin are going to coerce the people of California. It's true in any democratic election that the losers have to suck it up because they lost. And, you know, it was very striking how quickly Trump was anointed by people who had been sneering at him. I mean, one of the things I was struck by again on CNN, whose coverage I think was excellent, was Corey Lewandowski, uh, Trump's sort of advisor, who was there to kind of almost be mocked at the start of the evening. He was kind of part of the, the, the circus. And by the end, he was being treated as an oracle. And that took six hours. But given the things that have been said about Trump, including by Hillary Clinton, and as Helen pointed out on a previous podcast, including saying in the debates that he was a stooge of Vladimir Putin and other things, is this election different? I mean, is there a real possibility, regardless of the Electoral College and the fact that she may have won the popular vote, but is there a real question of democratic legitimacy in the sense that the losers may not be able to suck it up? Uh, they have to suck it up. And this is one of the fragile moments, I think, for the electoral process in America. If they don't suck it up, they're basically saying, 
or better off. Well, but as Chris point. was saying, this yeah, is yeah, yeah. the, the this experiment. Is public, this, this is the test. Absolutely. But there's a second part to this, which is, okay, fine, we suck it up, we say the rules of the game still apply. If anything serious comes out for all the stuff that we should have been talking about, Trump's tax returns, some of the charges against him in terms of sexual misconduct, if one of those breaks in a serious way and actually is shown to be true... Then we're into a territory where then Congress has to do something and potentially actually put him on trial as well. And then. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, what the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. All hell breaks loose. Paul Krugman, quite early in the night, wrote in the New York Times, we are now a failed state. I will say a a, a colleague who used to, I mean, who did a PhD in this faculty and now teaches in the States and studies African politics said that one of the Americanists in her faculty came to her to say, I need you to explain to me about failed states and post-election violence and, you know, what happens when political transitions break down, because I don't know anything about this and I it may become relevant to my research. Um, and she was sort of like, this is the first time the Americanists have ever been interested in the countries I study. But um, so, you know, I don't know. I think impeachment proceedings are possible if some of the stuff that's currently kind of rolling through the legal system comes out. But also I think there's, and this is a needle that I think the 48% here in the UK have been trying but not really succeeding at vetting. There's a difference between saying, you know, the election was lost, we accept the election result, and saying everything that the winners now want to do is fine. And I, and I do think, and I say this in a position of being extremely broken and not really able to organize this way today, we need to get organized. And we need to figure out, okay, what are the things that, what are the most dangerous things in the Trump agenda? And what can be done within the rules of the system as a legitimate opposition to prevent those things from happening? But of course, the difference with Brexit, the reason they're able to say that about Brexit is they they are saying that in a referendum, there was a question but there was no platform behind the question. But of course, Trump did have a platform and it was pretty clearly articulated as well. And he does now have Congress potentially to push it through. 
So the the, the, I, you know, the resistance, there are lots of lines of resistance, but it is slightly different from the Brexit case. I agree with Finbar that if we see any of the various scandals swirling around Trump breaking in a big way, then there's going to be very dramatic politics in the Congress. How could there not be? But if that doesn't blow up, then I wonder whether what really matters is whether Trump tries to deliver on any of his more wild rhetoric. Is he actually going to try to get Hillary Clinton locked up however he can? Um, I think the answer to that is no. Is, is, is he actually going to try and not only wipe out terrorists, but also all of their families? He, he, he was openly boasting about the commission of war crimes on the campaign trail. He is a very impulsive man. He is easy to bait. His enemies will try to bait him to provoke an overreaction. It may involve nuclear weapons. That's one of the terrifying thoughts. But if Trump can be restrained, and in a sense, he's already passed the first test with a more magnanimous than people expected victory speech, then it may be that the system will muddle through. But I don't expect he'll be restrained. Um, And then we will see what happens when the chief executive bends and breaks the rules of the political game as it's generally understood. And we will see how the rest of the political system bites back. So Helen, that legitimacy point, do you think it really is an issue now, particularly the way that the campaign was conducted, that questions have been raised about the kind of president that he would be that make this different from your usual winners and losers in democratic politics? I do think it is in a, in a particularly disturbing way, and that is, is I think that this is the first time, though Aaron will correct me if I'm wrong um, on this, that the losing candidate will have said that the winning candidate succeeded as a consequence of foreign intervention uh, in an election, and not just any old foreign intervention, but the intervention of a, a nuclear-armed state. I just don't think that there's a a precedent for this before. And if you took that to its logical conclusion, you would say that the response of the American national security state to this moment would be to stage a coup, because that is literally where you get to from having that thought. Now, I don't think that um, Trump was a, a Russian stooge, but that thought was put out there by Hillary Clinton openly in one of the debates. And I do think there is a a deep question issue now about how the foreign policy making apparatus, a national security state, call it what you will, is going to respond to a, a Trump presidency. Because whatever else you say about Trump in terms of there's ways of casting him, him as you, you were saying when we were talking over breakfast as an old style state led Democrat. But when it comes to foreign policy, he is massively outside where the parameters of American foreign policy have been for the last at least several decades and really, really um, longer than that. So in foreign policy terms, this is a a hugely uh, uncertain moment. And it's been made, the legitimacy aspect of it has been made worse, I think, by what Hillary Clinton said. And I think it was a second debate. I was going to say on the historical point of whether there's been presidential candidate who's been successful, who's been tarred as a foreign stooge. When John Quincy Adams won his election, thinking about it in 1800 when Jefferson won. As well. Yeah, that there's a period of transition in the early republic between a generation of American political leaders who imagine that American small r Republican government is going to be sort of in its political culture exactly like Europe except without kings 
and a younger generation who have a view that the political culture is actually going to be different in some way. And the generation of American politicians who have spent a lot of time in European capitals and in particular in France get tarred with this idea that they are trying to do something that is foreign and un-American. Um, and in the end, Jackson is the beneficiary of that critique. Um, so John Quincy Adams definitely had things like that written about him. And I think you might be right about Jefferson. Yeah. But, but what's striking about that is that was when the United States of America was, as you say, in transition. That's what you associate with democratic transition. It's not what you associate with mature democracy. Correct. Yeah. Clinton was definitely mistaken to say that uh, Trump is a puppet of Russia and of Putin, right? It's certainly the case that Trump has espoused policies that make the Russian foreign policy establishment very happy. One of the things that I was writing this morning as I was getting my thoughts together was that there are both theoretical and historical precedents for kind of Trump's foreign policy message. Theoretically, and I could imagine getting pushback from some of my colleagues in international relations, but theory of realism, which says that states don't have any permanent friends, only permanent interests, right? And that politics is highly transactional, right? Which means that, you know, if you're allies with somebody, you either pay your fair share or you get kicked off off the boat. That's exactly the type of politics that Trump has been espousing, right? The idea that Russia has a key interest in its near abroad that the United States should not meddle in, in places like the Baltics and Crimea and East Ukraine, uh, would be consistent with some versions of realist thinking, as would the idea that states should be mainly concerned with their relative economic gains to other countries rather than absolute gains, right? It's not enough for all boats to rise in an international marketplace. It's much better for your boat to be rising faster or even not sinking as quickly as potential adversaries, right? And so that's something that Trump has espoused. The kind of historical precedent is he's kind of a, a neo version of uh, somebody like a Senator Robert Taft, who would have been a classically conservative Republican who was isolated and unilateralist in his outlook was decidedly non-interventionist. Of course, the exception here is Trump's temperament is much less predictable than somebody like a Senator Taft's. He's, as people have pointed out, actually openly advocated uh, committing war crimes and the war on terror, war on ISIS, whatever you want to call it. And unlike Senator Taft, he's president. That's right. And he is president, but so soon, we mustn't forget it was really close and it could have gone the other way, right? I mean, I think we at the beginning we were saying about, you know, does Hillary Clinton have a message? And I feel like in all of the discussion of Trump, we're going to lose that she did come very, very close. And the message, I think, was not just that I think the message was about gender, but it wasn't just that she was a woman candidate, but that the first woman president has to be a candidate who is committed to gender issues. She was running as a woman feminist candidate, and there was an argument about that's who the first woman has to be. And, and I do sort of wonder what the implications of this result are for that kind of politics. Um, and I increasingly despair that that kind of politics is going to be successful in my lifetime. I think one of the, the, the problems of thinking about what's been happening in American politics in the way that Maha is just describing, it goes back to what happened in, in 2008, and the economic change and political change that was precipitated by the events of that year is is that America had an election in 2008 that essentially became about the desirability uh, of having the first African-American president. 
it then had from the Hillary Clinton campaign so far as there was a positive message and I'm a little bit more sceptical that that was a message as opposed to that she's not Donald Trump and you can't possibly vote for Donald Trump, an election that could run on the claim that Maha's just articulated. But in a sense, that kind of politics is a luxury in the times in which we live. That isn't to say that it's not a very good thing that Barack Obama was the first African-American president, although it wouldn't have been very momentous and important for there to be a first female president. But I think in the times in which we live, we cannot reduce politics to those questions. And I think that in part that what we've seen in this election is the reassertion of some older political conflicts around conflicts of socio-economic interests or straight conflicts of class interests. And I think one of the reasons why the Democratic Party has got into the predicament that it had, including the very fact that it ended up with Hillary Clinton as the nominee, was that it was at best blind to those concerns and at worst entirely indifferent to those concerns. But if this is a class struggle, it's still the case. We haven't got all of the real exit polling, but it's almost certainly going to be the case that Hillary Clinton will have won handsomely among women and that Trump will have won really handsomely among men. And of course, I think we are now all familiar with the fact that among white men without college degrees, he won an unprecedented landslide. Now, some of that clearly is class and the college degree question could be. But gender surely is still central to this. I also think the opposition is not necessarily between gender and class. And I know there are going to be Marxist listeners to this who are going to scream when really? they hear this. Really? We haven't but, heard from um, them recently. But I don't think America has a working class. I think America has a series of working classes. Um, and that one of the reasons that the politics of organizing on the left on the axis of class don't work very well in America is because the interests of the white male working class, the white female working class, the black male working class, the black female working class, the Latino male working class, and so on, are actually very different. And that until you can actually do something about discriminations and inequities of race and gender, it's not entirely clear to me how you build a viable class-based politics that isn't the dystopic one presented to us by Trump. But I think the reason why it looks like Trump may have won up to 20% of the African-American voters, I suspect he's won working class African-American votes. I think that he's shown that this question is more complicated than it was possible to mobilise the working class across ethnic lines in the way in which it was said before that it wasn't possible. So can I end with just a straight question? There is so much we could talk about and we will talk about it. But this is just a question you can answer it yes or no or you can say a bit more. Given the evidence we now have that Hillary Clinton was not the right candidate for the Democrats, because if you lose, you weren't the right candidate. Do we think Bernie Sanders could have won this election? I'm sceptical that Bernie Sanders could have won the election. Bernie Sanders was never tested in the battle of a general election. And a lot of stuff uh, about his past stances on things like Cuba, Nicaragua, where he was somewhat naively sympathetic to what were horribly oppressive socialist regimes, could have come back to bite him. Right? So one of the jokes was, if it comes to general election, you know, which label will people dislike most, socialist or Clinton? And I'm I'm skeptical that, that Sanders would have done better. Though that thing of not being tested in the crucible of the election was also true of Trump, who also came with a lot of baggage. So at least, I mean, we, we don't know, right? I mean, do you, Maha, do you have, you're also shaking your head. I'm you shaking my head. And I think if you just look at the map of, you know, states that Clinton won, I think Sanders could also have won those states. States that she needed to win and didn't win. He gets Michigan, maybe, if we assume that the primary might have replicated itself. 
I mean, Sanders certainly, with all of the voter suppression, does not win a place like North Carolina because Bernie Sanders has horrible polling numbers among African-Americans. And that is heavily related to the fact that, A, he comes from a very white state, and B, he actually has quite a atypical for a Democrat position on gun control, which is a huge issue in the African-American community. And he maybe loses Virginia uh, yeah, as well, which for was the same reason. Uh, uh, hair's breadth to going to Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the other thing I would say, perhaps in Sanders' favor, is one of the things that struck me about the exit polls was that people were saying, well, yes, Clinton is clearly more qualified to be president, but who's more likely to bring change? Not necessarily good change or bad change. Uh, who's more likely to bring change? Donald Trump. Uh, there's an expression sometimes used called gambling for resurrection, right? If you are very desperate, you may pick a choice that you know probably nine times out of ten is going to leave you worth, worse off. But that one time, it might make you really much better off, right? And perhaps the safe choice that perhaps makes you incrementally better off uh, when you're living with a kind of, pardon my French, shitty status quo, that might not be so appealing. Whereas the possibility of a big payout, even if it also might lead to kind of a dystopian future, is more appealing. And, you know, Sanders, I think also, if you would have polled people at exit polls, right, who's more likely to lead to change? Sanders, I think, certainly would have won that question if you consider, you know, people saying, yes, I want change, right? That that was driving a lot of people's votes. I think Sanders would have won with the caveat that it would have probably brought Michael Bloomberg into the race. And that would have, a Trump versus Sanders race would have had a third man candidacy. And it's difficult to see what the, the consequences of that would be. But the reason why I think that he could have won or would have won is because I think this election turns on whether you analyse it as an election about Donald Trump or whether you analyse it as an election about Hillary Clinton. And I think that the mistake that the Democrats have made from beginning to end of this is not understanding that when they nominated Hillary Clinton as a candidate, they made this election about having another Clinton presidency. And lots of the people, it looks like, who voted for Trump have a very low opinion of Trump, but it's just that they had an even lower opinion of the prospect of a Hillary Clinton presidency. And there's where the, the damage to the Republic has been done by this election. The other really astonishing exit polling figure was asking people, they had to rate, I can't remember the four categories, but of each candidate, do they leave you feeling, and I think it was sort of happy, contented, concerned, scared. And with Trump, the numbers that were either concerned or scared were somewhere around 60-65%. So a lot of people who were either concerned or scared by a Donald Trump presidency voted for him. Maybe that's a good point on which to (laughs) stop this conversation, but we will resume this many times over. I thought this week, actually, that because I thought Hillary Clinton was going to win and we'd have a certain amount to talk about, we would pivot back to Brexit, talk about the role of the Supreme Court in this country and many other things. We haven't even got close to talking about that, but we will. Next week, I also thought we were going to be talking to Judith Butler about how she felt about America having its first woman president. Now, I hope, I I hope we still have this conversation, we'll be talking to Judith Butler about how she feels about the presidency of Donald Trump. There is a lot more to talk about. Do please stay with this podcast for the next few months and beyond because nothing is going to get any easier and we're going to be trying to make sense of it as best we can on slightly more sleep and a little bit more time to reflect. Subscribe, do rate us on iTunes. My name is David Runciman and we have been Talking Politics. Hello, it is now 
Five minutes to 11, and I have just sat down to begin watching the election coverage. Um, I'm in an audience that has a few Americans and otherwise quite an international mix. Um, and we expect the first polls to start closing in an hour. Um, and the mood, I think, is cautiously optimistic for Hillary Clinton at the moment. And it's now five past 11, and you can tell from what's being said on CNN from Clinton headquarters and from Trump headquarters that Trump is going to lose this. From Swing State, Florida! Yeah! I promised myself I wouldn't check the betting odds because I didn't want to make that mistake again, and I've just checked the betting odds. Um, I think we're going to go to the TV and see what the results are so far. And Hillary Clinton has tightened so that she's now something like a 1-8 to eight chance, and that reassured me that things were going as we expected. And then I remembered I did exactly the same on Brexit night. It's hard not to get superstitious, but I'm trying. Okay, we are checking in again at just before 2.30 in the morning UK time. And I am now regretting recording multiple times that I was cautiously optimistic because I am now pretty nervous. Um, the win probability on the New York Times page for Clinton has now dropped below 60%. Uh, so it's 2.20 in the morning. Currently, things are going worse for the Democrats uh, than they would probably like. Trump is currently uh, ahead in a close race in Florida, though uh, st still uh, many precincts in Broward County, which is heavily Democratic, and a large county in Florida uh, yet to come in. I've started trying to follow it online as well, 5.38 and other places. Genuinely, I think CNN are trying to slightly talk up how close it is but I also feel they honestly don't know that an hour ago you felt they were talking it up but deep down they knew or they felt they knew that Hillary Clinton would win now I genuinely think they're not sure and so I'm not sure so I'm not going to bed it is currently 3:10 in the morning and I'm watching BBC uh, election coverage Clinton, who was supposed to win Virginia so comfortably that it didn't really show up as a swing state in any polling site that I saw, uh, is barely ahead there by about 0.5% of the vote. So even if she wins Virginia, that bodes very badly. We should get some caffeine. Yeah, we have calls for caffeine. Can we get caffeine? Is that a thing we're able to do? That, that I'm looking at a map and it's um, Virginia. Whoa. Okay. If he wins Virginia, he's going to win. He's going to be president, I think, maybe. Wow. Wow. Okay. It's 3.40 in the morning, UK time. We still don't know the result, but the odds have switched dramatically in the last hour and change. And I am pretty stunned. Um, almost too stunned to cry, even though this is really the scariest thing in politics to happen in my lifetime. Well, it is five in the morning, and I am about to go to bed, but it looks like uh, the polling industry got everything entirely wrong, because at the moment I see absolutely no path forward for Hillary Clinton to be the next president of the United States. It will be Donald Trump. So... Pack your bags and batten down the hatches. It's going to be 
a interesting four years ahead. Mm -hmm.